May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Uh, have any of y'all seen the movie A Man for All Seasons? <laughs> Apparently there's no one in the entirety of the Tremont Charge who has seen the movie A Man for All Seasons. Yes, it's from 1966. It's an old movie. So you have seen it. I have one. Okay. Uh, if you haven't, go to the place where you rent movies, wherever that may be in this day and age, and rent it. It's a fantastic movie. Uh, it tells the story of Thomas More. Thomas More was the Lord Chancellor of England under the reign of Henry VIII. And you may remember Henry VIII from your history class, and if you do, uh, you will remember that uh, there was a problem with Henry VIII. Henry VIII uh, wanted to divorce his wife, Catherine of Aragon, but the church, the Catholic Church, would not let him. Uh, and so Pope Clement VII told Henry that he was not allowed to divorce. And Henry, uh, there was some political stuff behind this as well, but uh, he wanted to divorce Catherine of Aragon, so he said, well, I'll be my own church, that's fine, and I'll be the head of it, and uh, I need an oath of allegiance from all of my people, all of my, you know, all of the leadership to say that I, I am the head of the church. And that would be expected of Thomas More as the Lord Chancellor, his chief advisor. But Thomas refused to take the oath. Because he said to Henry, you're doing this for the wrong reasons. You don't have the power to do this, uh, and so I won't sign it. I won't sign it. And so, A Man for All Seasons tells the story of what happens to Thomas More in the middle of this political conflict. Early in the movie, we meet this young man named Richard Rich. Richard Rich wants uh, to, he wants you know, a political career. He wants to get more power and go up the ranks and become a leader in the government of Henry VIII. And he comes to Thomas for advice, seeking uh, for Thomas to be his mentor and, and his guide. And Thomas detects his character. And he realizes that, that Rich is after power for the wrong reasons. And he tells them, you shouldn't do this. You should go and do something else with your life. And later on, we learn that Rich has betrayed Thomas. And he has lied in court about what Thomas has said to him so that the court would convict Thomas of treason and then execute him. So the final, this is unfortunate for Thomas, but it's good for me because it makes for my favorite scene in the whole movie. Uh, and we have, we have Thomas there in court on trial. And Rich has come in and has testified against Thomas, has perjured himself, has lied, has betrayed his friend, and accused him of treason. Uh, and Moore gets to cross-examine him. He says, you know, I only have one question I want to ask of the court. I see that, you know, Richard, he's in these robes. Richard's this little mealy-mouth guy. And he's wearing these big robes, and he has this huge gaudy chain on. And, and Thomas says, uh, is that a chain of office around Rich's neck? The judge says, yes, Richard has been appointed Attorney General for Wales. Now, Wales, you understand, has been conquered by England at this point. It's a backwater. No one respects Wales. This is, a, this is on the outskirts. And the position that Richard has been appointed to is, you know, he's, he's traded, he's betrayed his friend for this office in this far-off part of the country. And Thomas comes close up to Richard, and he says to him, Why, Richard, it 
profits a man nothing to forfeit his soul for the whole world, but for whales? So, so, there, so there we have these two men. Uh, the one who would be accused of treason and then executed. The one who would be accused of betraying the king. And beside him, the man who actually betrayed his friend. Actually betrayed his friend. You know, Richard, um, Rich, superficially he wants power. He wants to accumulate um, you know, wealth and position. But really, I think, the reason that anybody does that um, isn't just to have power. It's to have power for something specifically. And that's to have as little suffering as possible in your life. When he wants power, he wants wealth so that he doesn't have to suffer. He can be in charge and he can control his life as much as possible. He doesn't have to be at the whims of other people. Thomas is willing to put himself at the whims even of this king who has turned against him and give up his own life to remain true to his conscience. And that same choice is before us. And maybe life and death isn't on the line. Usually for us it isn't. But we still have the same choice. Are we going to put our trust in ourselves and our own power and what we can secure for ourselves and wealth? Or are we going to put our trust in God? Are we going to remain true to what God has called us to be, who God has called us to be? Or are we going to betray our friends and betray ourselves to protect ourselves? That same choice is before us. And that same choice is, in a way, right here in the gospel text that we read in Mark. If you think about this, this is a strange story. Um, it's a very strange passage indeed, because here we have Peter, who moments before, okay, in the, in the passage that comes right before what we read today, you might, may remember this from a previous reading. We have Peter who confesses that Jesus is the Messiah. It's a great moment. Je Peter's the first human being to say Jesus is the, is the Messiah. And it's right before this happens. And Jesus tells Peter, on you I'm going to build my church. Great moment. Great moment in the gospel. Great moment for Peter. You'd think he'd be on this, this spiritual high point, okay? Um, but then we have Peter taking Jesus aside and rebuking him. And Jesus, in return, rebuking Peter and calling him Satan, the one he had just, a couple of minutes ago, it seems, uh, told, I was going to build my church on you. And now he's calling him Satan. Satan, what's going on here? I mean, it, it, reading through Mark, it should strike us strangely. Maybe we've heard this story before, so it's familiar, but if it's fresh to you, it is an odd and strange story. But also, I think, a little intimidating. Because when I read this, the person whose shoes I put myself in in this story is Peter's. And, and I don't want to be the one that Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. And this is, this is, as my friend calls it, the intense side of Jesus. And this passage can be intimidating for that very reason. This is, these are challenge, very challenging words. And so we would do well, we would do very well to spend time with it to, to understand what this challenge is, what Jesus is telling his disciples about what it means to be one of his followers and what the cost of following Jesus is. So a little bit of a little bit of historical background because I think you need it to understand what's going on here. In the passage just before this, the same one where uh, Peter has gone up with, uh, or, or where Peter and Jesus have had this exchange where Jesus says that, or Peter says that Jesus is the Messiah. 
Uh, it tells that they've gone to this place called Caesarea Philippi. This is about a, a two-day journey up from Galilee where Jesus has been doing most of his work in the Gospel of Mark. Uh, so they're up there in Caesarea Philippi. And uh, as you might imagine from the name, Caesarea is a city that's named in honor of Caesar, of the Roman emperor. There are a couple other Caesareas around, so you had to distinguish which one this was. This was the Caesarea that was built by Philip, and that is Philip II, who was the son of Herod the Great. You'll remember Herod the Great from all of the of the you know the Christmas stories in, in the Gospel. So Philip, it's a pretty new city. Philip has built it and built it in honor of the Roman Emperor Caesar. And in the middle of that city is a temple, a temple that is dedicated to the worship of the Roman Emperor as a god. And so it is there, right under the, not the literal nose of the emperor, but right where he's worshipped. So in a sense, right under the nose of the emperor, where Peter says to Jesus, you're the Messiah, you're the anointed one, you're the Christ, you're the one who's going to do away with our enemies, in effect. Right under the nose of the most powerful people in the world. Peter knows that these are dangerous, dangerous words. The, uh, the, the word Christ, and we use it, you know, we talk about Jesus Christ all the time, but sometimes we, because we just use that word, we forget what it actually means. Uh, Christ is the Greek for the anointed one. Okay? It's the same as the word Messiah. Messiah is just Hebrew for anointed one. And to, Sometimes we use that phrase even anointed one and we don't explain what it means. To anoint, if you didn't know, is to put oil on somebody. And that was the, that was the mark of somebody being marked out for, for something special in the Old Testament. And the Messiah, the anointed one in the Old Testament, um, and was, was the one uh, that was hoped for that would come and save Israel. That would be this special figure that would bring to completion all that God had been doing with his people. And many Jews, not all, but many Jews at the time of Jesus were hoping that the Messiah would come. And many of them, again, not all, but many of them were hoping that the Messiah would do three things in particular. One, the Messiah is supposed to come and either cleanse the temple or perhaps even destroy the current temple and rebuild a new one. That's good. So it would be the hope that the Messiah would come and cleanse the temple in a, in a few days or in a few weeks on Palm Sunday, we talk about Jesus doing just that. People also hoped that the Messiah would come and bring God's justice. You know, we live in a world just like them that's full of injustice. They knew this. They wanted God's justice to come, and they thought that when the Messiah came, justice would come with them. And three, the way in particular that the Messiah would do that would... Uh, the way that the Messiah would do that would be by defeating Israel's enemies. Defeating Israel's enemies. Protecting God's people. Bringing justice and peace to them so that they could live in prosperity. And that's what people were hoping for. That's very likely what is on Peter's mind when he says to Jesus, under the nose of the Roman emperor, you are the Messiah. And he's, he's right in a way, but he doesn't understand quite yet how he's right. You know, when, whenever we say with Peter, Jesus is Lord, 
The implication is that Jesus is Lord and all this other stuff that pretends it's Lord is not. Jesus is Lord and Caesar isn't. It's dangerous words because Caesar doesn't like being told that he's not in charge. Okay, So I think Peter's not scared here. I don't think that's why Peter is telling you. I don't think he's like, I don't want to take up my cross. That's not it. That's not it. Peter is concerned for his friend, his friend who he has great hopes for. And Peter is concerned about Jesus. Of course, he doesn't want him to die, but he also wants Jesus to do all this stuff that the Messiah is supposed to do. The, the Messiah is supposed to cleanse the temple, the place where we go to meet God. The Messiah is supposed to bring justice. The Messiah is the one who's supposed to defeat Israel's enemies. And I don't, you know, I don't know an awful lot about military strategy, but I do know this, that dying is not the best way to defeat Caesar, at least in terms of uh, the world that we understand, Okay. And so when Peter starts talking about, or when Jesus starts talking about dying, Peter says, well, that doesn't match with the Messiah. And then he talks about rising again. Uh, and that doesn't make much sense to Peter because in that world, people, if they believed in the resurrection, didn't expect it to come until the very end of the age. So that doesn't make any sense to him. This is completely confusing to Peter. And it's as if Jesus doesn't know what the Messiah is supposed to do. And so Peter takes his friend aside and he says to him, this is my, this is my translation of this, okay? Uh, he says to him, Jesus, what are you talking about? You can't, you can't talk about dying. I mean, that doesn't make sense. You're supposed to be the Messiah. What are you thinking? You need to do the things that the Messiah are supposed to do. We put all our hopes in you. Don't disappoint us. That's what Peter's fear is. You're the Messiah. Now act like it. And it's easy with the wealth of hindsight to uh, condemn Peter, but I think many of us would have said, I think perhaps all of us in Peter's shoes would have said the exact same thing or even worse because what Peter is saying is that he wants Jesus to bring justice to the world and it sounds like Jesus isn't going to do that. But the problem with what Peter says is that if Jesus is the Messiah, as Peter says he is, then surely Jesus knows what it means to be the Messiah better than Peter does. And so many of us, so many of us want to tell Jesus how to do his job, even today. Peter wants to tell Jesus how to do his job. But if Jesus is who he says he is, then he knows what it means. He knows what it means to be the one who was called to redeem Israel. And what Jesus understands about his vocation, what Jesus understands about his role in the world is that he's not there just for a political protection or a military victory. He's not there just for these short-term hopes. He's there to fulfill what Israel was supposed to be from the very beginning, to bring to completion the promises that God had made to his people. Some of you, I, I try to put in the bulletin uh, the readings ahead for the lectionary because some people like to keep up with that. And so for those of you who keep up with those, um, you might have read this already. But uh, in Genesis 17, it talks about God's covenant with Abraham. And, uh, and, and this is what it says. This is what God says to Abraham. As for me, this is my covenant with you. You shall be the ancestor of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made of you an ancestor of a multitude of people. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of you, and kings shall come from you, and I will establish my covenant between you and your offspring 
after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be your God and to your offspring after you. A multitude of nation, nations, kings, plural, an everlasting covenant. This promise isn't just for Abraham. This, is, this promise is, as Genesis 12, 3 puts it, that in you, Abraham, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. We're the recipients of that. Some of you might have Jewish ancestry, but I doubt it. Um, or I doubt very many of you do. We are all here as the rest of the world. We are the nations. We have benefited from being attached to God's people by Jesus. This is what Jesus knows and what Peter doesn't. For whatever reason, Peter doesn't recognize it. That redemption has to come for the whole world through Jesus. And so then Jesus tells Peter, get behind me, Satan. Get behind me, Satan. Those of you who are doing the Lent for Everyone readings will have had this as your devotional reading yesterday. And that's the whole idea. We study it Wednesday, we have a devotional on it Saturday, and then we preach about it on Sunday. So it kind of works on all you know, cylinders. And what you might have noticed in the translation there is that uh, it says, Get behind me, accuser. And it's capital A, accuser. That's not the translator going light on the concept of the devil. Uh, that's, that's not his point. Um, it's actually the literal translation. Because Satan, it just literally that means accuser. And that was the, that was the, that's the conception of what Satan is. You may remember from the book of Job, Satan accuses Job before God. And what Jesus is saying to Peter is, Peter, you're accusing me. You're accusing me of not knowing what it means to be the Messiah. You're accusing me of not, know, of not uh, having the best people's, in, the people's best interest in heart, at heart. You're accusing me. Get behind me. Get behind me. Notice what he doesn't say to Peter. He doesn't say to Peter, get out of here. He doesn't say, go away. He says, get behind me. Because what Peter has done, he's put himself before Jesus. He thinks that he knows what it means to get power and control in this world to keep suffering from happening. But in reality, it's Jesus who knows that. So he tells Peter, get where you're supposed to be. Get behind me. Start following. Start following. Because I'm going to show you what victory over sin and death in the world looks like. I'm going to show you what it means to take up your cross and follow. And then he turns to the disciples and he tells them, tells them these words about taking up their crosses and following me. About being willing to give up their lives. These are no light, these are no light words. Um, we see crosses oftentimes in sort of a sanitized way because we see them in jewelry and decorations and things like that. And that's, that's not a bad thing that we do that. Um, but we forget that this is an instrument of a very, very torturous execution. It's like saying, take up your electric chair and follow me, or take up your gas chamber and follow me. And so these are very provocative words uh, and, and, and fear-inducing words, perhaps. And the people would have known, and people would have known what this meant. They might well have known about the, uh, another movie. Y'all seen Spartacus? Okay, Spartacus is about the third servile war. And in AD, or excuse me, uh, 70 BC, 6,000 people are 
executed by crucifixion on the Appian Way into Rome. That scene is depicted in that movie. And they would have almost surely known about in 4 BC, 2,000 men were crucified in and around Galilee. And they would have known what Jesus is talking about. These are dangerous words. This is a radical call to trust in him. Is that trusting in me is like giving up your life. What we like to do when we're, when we're confronted with suffering, there are three basic things that we can do. Okay? We can detach ourselves. And we can say, this is kind of what Buddhism does. It says you detach yourself from other people and desire, and you don't have to, then you won't suffer. Okay? And in many ways, we do that too. When we're faced with suffering, we kind of do it in a different way. We shrink in on ourselves and we retreat. We retreat from our relationships and we don't do the hard things that we have to do. And we become shrunken in on ourselves. And it's unhealthy because when confronted with suffering, we just completely avoid it and we become less of a a person because we just turn in on ourselves. And then there's the other thing sometimes people will do and they'll just embrace it and we'll act like suffering has just been sent to us by God and that all suffering is good. And that's a problem too, because then that's to say that God is doing evil, and you can't say that, okay? So some people will go to the other extreme and try to sort of baptize all suffering, and, and will then do kind of a pop version of that and say, well, that this you know, character flaw or this whatever, that's just my cross to bear. Then we've lost what it means to be a radical disciple of Jesus. That's not what that passage is about. God can most assuredly use our suffering, and God most assuredly disciplines us, but God isn't the author of evil, and sometimes we forget that. And here is the Christian way, and here's what Jesus is telling Peter about how you face suffering in this world. You face it by knowing that Jesus has overcome it. And yes, yes, you may suffer, and that's going to happen in this life. But take heart, because Jesus has suffered in your place. Jesus has gone before you. And that Jesus will be the one who not only takes up his cross, but also rises again in three days. So we can be confident that he is there with us whenever we face trouble in this life. John 16, 33, Jesus tells his disciples, In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. To be a disciple of Jesus, he is telling us, is to say to Jesus, we trust you. We don't trust ourselves to accumulate uh, whatever it is that will prevent us from feeling pain. Um, And we're not going to just sort of retreat off to ourselves either. But instead, Jesus, we trust in you. So that in the middle of whatever you're going through, you can know that Christ is there with you. And not only there to comfort you in that moment, but because he's overcome death itself. And he has invited us then, he's invited us then to go and be his people, to partake in his work of redeeming the world. Jesus saw himself as being, in a sense, Israel. His job as the Messiah wasn't just to protect Israel, it was to be Israel. Israel is supposed to be a blessing for the whole world. 
And then Jesus in turn blesses the whole world by dying as the faithful Messiah, the faithful servant of Israel, dying and rising again. And then the invitation for us as his people and as the body of Christ, as the body of Christ is then to go and be a blessing to the world. The world that's suffering. And even we who are suffering with it. To go and to say to them, we trust in Christ. And Christ will be in this situation. Christ will be with you. To have that kind of radical trust. Let's go back to a man for all seasons. Richard Rich, what he really was poor in was trust. He didn't even trust, well, he, maybe he trusted himself. He trusted in wealth and power, but he didn't trust in doing the right thing. Thomas More was a man of, of profound faith, a man who trusted in God, who knew that even if it cost him his own life, even if it cost him his own life, he was willing to pay that cost to be uh, what what he, to do what he thought was right in the eyes of God. And to us, to us, the call is whatever walk of life we find ourselves in, whatever choices we are presented with, to make the decision to put our trust in Christ and not to put our trust in ourselves. Let's pray. Lord, we pray to you today that you would help us uh, to put our complete confidence in you. We pray that you, uh, in this season of Lent, would help us put away all of those things that we would hoard around ourselves to protect ourselves and to isolate ourselves and to keep, so we think, suffering from coming to us. We instead, we instead pray Uh, that you would be with us, that we would know that you are with us wherever we go, and that we can put our whole heart, our whole faith, our whole trust in you. In your son's name we pray. Amen.